uh, the House comes to oral questions. Question number one, in the name of Barbara Edmonds. Talafalawa, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Finance. What recent reports has he seen on the New Zealand economy? Uh, the Honourable Grant Robertson. Mr Speaker, the construction sector is continuing to grow. Stats New Zealand reported that the volume of building activity rose 3.8% in the September quarter. Residential construction rose 3.1%, while industrial and commercial building activity increased 4.9%. The result was above economists' expectations and has led them to revise upwards their forecast for GDP in the September quarter. The economy is expected to grow solidly in the September quarter, if not as strong as in the previous June period when the economy expanded 1.7 per cent. Mr Speaker, we know that 2023 is going to be a difficult year for the global economy and that this will affect New Zealand's prospects. But New Zealand finds itself in a strong starting position, with unemployment near record lows, exports growing and tourists returning in greater numbers. Supplementary. What other reports has he seen on the economy? Mr Speaker, momentum in the economy is expected to continue into the December quarter, though activity has shown signs of slowing. Statistics New Zealand report that the New Zealand Activity Index, a composite index of activity across the economy, rose 3.1 per cent in October compared to the same period a year ago. Activity indicators were up in the electronic card transaction activity, grid demand and job advertisements, together with a reduction in job seeker numbers. Both the activity outlook and the performance of manufacturing index fell. Supplementary. What reports has he seen on net migration and how is it impacting on the economy? Mr Speaker, Statistics New Zealand reported that there was a net gain of 3,300 people arriving in October with an estimated 11,400 arrivals and 8,100 departures. Our immigration reset is working and attracting the overseas workers with the skills that businesses require to rebuild the economy. And yesterday's announcement to expand the Green List will further support businesses to recruit internationally to fill the shortages we have. Supplementary. What reports has he seen on the international context for the New Zealand economy? Mr Speaker, global factory output fell widely in November. In the United States, its Manufacturing Purchasing Management Index, or PMI, fell to 49, below the 50 level that marks growth in activity. In Europe, its manufacturing PMI stood at 46.4, while in the UK and China, manufacturing activity shrank for a fourth month in a row. The deteriorating global economy is affecting New Zealand's prospects as we head into next year. We'll be facing a period of high inflation, which is then forecast to be followed by a shallow recession. New Zealand does find itself well positioned to deal with what the world throws at us, with the government's books in good shape and our debt levels among the lowest in the world. We will continue to carefully and responsibly prioritise our spending without unnecessary adding to inflation. This is a balanced approach that gives us choices and flexibility to respond and support New Zealanders as the global environment changes. Uh, question number two, Christopher Luxon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister and reads, does she stand by all of her government's statements and actions? Mr Speaker, right yes, particularly this government's continued action to support businesses to recruit new workers internationally mm. to fill critical skill shortages. The whole world is experiencing labour shortages. We have approved over 94,000 job positions for international recruitment. We've granted over 40,000 working holiday visas. We've reopened 
the Pacific Access category and Samoa quota. We've delivered the largest increase in a decade to the REC scheme and we've resumed the skilled migrant category and parent category to strengthen our international offering. But there is more that we can do. Mr Speaker, that is why we expanded the green list settings to include more professions in our healthcare, education and construction sectors. But Mr Speaker, as you can see, there is a global workforce shortage. New Zealand continues to do all it can to remain competitive. Did Minister Mahuta inform her about the proposed Three Waters Entrenchment SOP after she received advice about it in October? And if not, why is she still a minister? Mr Speaker, as I've said in this House and publicly many times, the SOP uh, that was passed during committee stages was tabled after caucus. Mr Speaker, also this is an issue that we ensured was fixed before the final bill passed. We've acknowledged it was a mistake. Why is Nanaya Mahuta still a minister? Because Nanaya Mahuta is an excellent yeah. minister, Mr Speaker, and I will stand by that minister for the work that she does on our behalf on the world stage, for the work that she does at home, fixing infrastructure that governments time and time again ignored that we had a massive deficit in. Mr Speaker, it has been a contributing factor to the housing crisis we have. It is one of the reasons that you cannot swim in Auckland beaches right now, Mr Speaker. And while we've had boil water notices in towns up and down this country, Minister Mahuta finally stood up and did something about it, and I stand firm with her. Is she honestly saying that she considers a minister holding up a Whitaker's chocolate bar for social media to be a breach of the Cabinet manual, but yet a minister deliberately flouting a clear Cabinet decision on entrenchment is not? Mr Speaker, the member's last part of the question is incorrect. The minister did not. How does she think Kiwis who have spent months on surgical wait lists because of her inability to admit her mistakes are going to feel now that seven months later she suddenly realised New Zealand has a nursing shortage. Mr Speaker, we have had 2,900 nurses come into this country during the pandemic. We have had this year 4,500 internationally trained nurses. 4,500 internationally trained nurses register with the Nursing Council. We've had 900 in November alone, record numbers. The change we made yesterday, Mr Speaker, is about maintaining our competitive edge and attracting health workers whilst many other countries experience a similar shortage. And I stand by that. Why couldn't she just admit she got it wrong and offered nurses immediate residency seven months ago as National and the whole health sector was calling for? Mr Speaker, the member continually mischaracterises what we did in the first place, which, is which was, Mr Speaker, to fast-track nurses from the position so. they had under National uh, to residency. And Mr Speaker, it demonstrates the difference it made with the record numbers that we had oh, seeking registration with the Nursing Council. We want to stay one step ahead of a globally competitive environment and that's why we made the changes we have. Um, the Honourable Michael Wood. Does the Prime Minister agree with public comments that have been recently made that New Zealand's borders should have been fully opened in November of last year? Uh, sorry, Mr Speaker, could you just repeat the question? <laughs> does, does the Prime, does the um, Prime Minister... Does the Prime Minister agree with public comments recently made that the Government should have fully reopened the borders in November of last year? Uh, 
Mr Speaker, I stand by every decision that we have made, including the members' decisions on the bringing back in and expediting, uh, Mr Speaker, the visa processing for those where we've had shortages. I also stand by the members' immigration rebalance work, which has meant we are recruiting for 90,000 places right now. And I also stand by Minister Little's work to improve nurses' pay, Mr Speaker, because it's not just about visas, it's also about attracting people with the working conditions. I stand by this government's work on those shortages. Oh, my goodness. Um, She said she's finally planning to tell her ministers to focus and start prioritising. Does that mean she's also now planning to U-turn on the TVNZ-RNZ merger, her farm emissions overreach and the jobs tax? Uh, Mr Speaker, stand by that statement. I've asked members to go away and over summer make sure that in 2023 we continue to focus on uh, the economy, on supporting New Zealanders through what will be a difficult time, through uh, an economically volatile period, just in the same way that we have already reduced fuel at the pump, the cost of living payment, the increase in the family tax credit. Uh, and Mr Speaker, all of this we know has made a difference to lower middle income earners. Compare that with the one idea the National Party has had, which they may or may not have reversed. That's right. Isn't it the case that she's totally lost control of her cabinet? She cannot admit when she's wrong, and she's now just desperately cancelling her agenda in response to bad polls and bad press. Mr Speaker, no. <laughs> Question number three. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Housing and asks, what actions has the government taken to achieve better housing outcomes for the people of Rotorua? Mr. Speaker. Uh, The Honourable Dr. Megan Woods. On Friday, we signed the Rotorua Housing Accord with Rotorua Lakes Council to Arawa Iwi. The accord renews the commitment by all parties to work collaboratively on addressing Rotorua's chronic housing shortage and improve emergency housing. The accord builds on the significant progress already made as of November 2022, including the number of motels used for emergency housing has fallen by 20 since November 2021, and we plan to have only three mixed-use motels left by Christmas. The number of households in emergency housing was 372 people, um, households in December 2021, and that has now fallen to 168 households as at November 2022. We've brought on 230 public housing places since 2017, and we are seeing increasing private developments with 390 new building consents issued in the year to October 2022, compared to 64 consents in the year to June 2014. Supplementary. What does the accord seek to achieve? Mr Speaker, the accord signifies a strong, ongoing commitment for central government, local government and iwi to build a better housing future for Rotorua. Rotorua's population increased by over 9,000 people after 2013, but only 1,200 private homes were built. Rotorua also suffered a net loss of 42 public homes under the last government. Specifically, the accord seeks to reduce the Alliance on Emergency Housing 
It seeks to provide better support and care for people in emergency housing and importantly, Mr Speaker, increase housing supply to ensure more Rotorua people have access to safe, dry, warm, permanent homes. How does the Accord complement work already underway in Rotorua? Mr Speaker, in mid-2021, through the Rotorua Housing Task Force, we established Te Pukapu, the Rotorua Housing Hub. We contracted emergency accommodation for families and whānau with children and provided additional wraparound social support services. We've also invested in housing and infrastructure, including around 330 public and transitional homes under construction or in planning by Kainga Ora community housing providers and iwi and Māori, and over $139 million for transport and water infrastructure through the Infrastructure Acceleration Fund and Shovel Ready Funding. What feedback has you heard about the accord? Mr Speaker, Rotorua Mia Tanya Tapsell says the Accord responds to the urgent need to end mixed-use tourism accommodation and deliver better housing solution for those in need. Mia Tapsell also said the Accord was a huge win for us here in Rotorua and we will see visible changes within a year. Rawiri Waru, the chairman of Te Arawa Working Party, responding to the emergency housing, said, we agree that housing development, which is environmentally friendly and sustainable, is desperately needed in Rotorua. The Accord recognises our collaborative duty to address the chronic housing crisis and tackle the many issues that have emerged from it. Uh, question number four, David Seymour. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister and reads, uh, does she stand by all her government's statements and policies? Uh, the Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, yes. I was especially delighted to see the support on the forecourt today from across the House for our world champion Blackferns yeah. and stand by the support that we as a government have provided this and other major women's sporting events. 2023, Mr Speaker, will be a very big year. Yes. When will she show some leadership and sack Nanaia Mahuta? Mr Speaker, uh, obviously, uh, as I've already said in this House, I have no such intention. How will New Zealand become a more peaceful and united country from the introduction of a law that allows people to be fined or jailed for, quote, insulting a religion? Oh. Mr Speaker, as we have debated and discussed in this House uh, many times before, uh, we already have provision in our Human Rights Act uh, to prevent incitement, Mr Speaker, based uh, on uh, ethnicity or race. Uh, what we have simply uh, done, Mr Speaker, is add the word religion. If the member has a fundamental issue with the human rights legislation as it stands, that's a matter for the member. Obviously, on this side of the House, we support the existing legislation, but believe it should be extended. So is the Prime Minister's position that this addition of religion to the Human Rights Act will make no difference, or that it will actually allow people to be prosecuted for insulting religions? No, Mr Speaker, it, my argument is not that it will make no difference. So my argument is that we already have an existing framework in which the legal parameters can already be tested around issues like, for instance, race, uh, and we have added now uh, the additional uh, uh, word of religion. 
That is based, of course, on the experience that we've had in New Zealand, the sad experience we've had in New Zealand and the recommendation of the Royal Commission. The Royal Commission did uh, make suggestion that some of those definitions more broadly should be altered. A consultation document was put out on that. Uh, it received a lot of feedback. In the end, Mr Speaker, we've asked the Law Commission to support wider work because our aspiration remains to get cross-party consensus. Good luck. Does she stand by her various statements blaming foreign factors for inflation when home grow and food just increased 10.7 per cent year on year in New Zealand, according to Stats New Zealand yesterday? Mr Speaker, yes. Does she stand by her various statements that other countries have it worse when a net 15,000 New Zealanders chose to vote with their feet and move to other countries in the year to November? Uh, Mr Speaker, the member has already heard me talk about the net positive growth we've had uh, when it terms to, comes to migration. Uh, Mr Speaker, I have not for a moment uh, diminished the experience that New Zealanders are having uh, as a result of inflation. What I have done is put into context the fact that we are not having that experience alone and relative to other countries our experience uh, is not uh, as significant. We're in the lower half of the 38 uh, OECD nations. How can the Prime Minister say that her immigration policy is working when more people are leaving than coming. Uh, Mr Speaker, because uh, the member is incorrect, as I already said in the House, if you look at the data, monthly migrants arriving are higher than departures, and this has been the trend over the past few months. Uh, Mr Speaker, the member can simply look at the numbers. Does she realise New Zealanders having to tighten their belts in a cost-of-living crisis are getting increasingly angry when they see her government increase its own expenditure $40 billion on pre-COVID levels, even next year and the year after that. Mr Speaker, the member again is incorrect as a reflection, uh, our spending as a reflection of a percentage of DDP has decreased from 34% down to 31% as where traditionally you tend to see uh, those numbers trend across different governments. Mr Speaker, we absolutely acknowledge uh, the times that we are in and we are acting accordingly. So if this government inherited spending at around 28% of GDP and will soon settle at 31%, has this government increased spending as a percentage of GDP or decreased it? But Mr Speaker, as I said, it brings us back broadly into line with the trends that we have seen. With, uh, Mr Speaker, of course, the interruption, not insignificant, of a one-in-100-year pandemic, where most members in this House supported the additional expenditure that was put in place by this government to support business. It's one of the reasons we have one of the lowest unemployment rates that we have seen, Mr Speaker, uh, at 3.3%. And it is, Mr Speaker, one of the reasons we have such low unemployment for Māori, for Pacific and for women. And we stand by that record. Why has her government convicted only three parents in five years for kids not attending school when there are thousands of unexplained absences from New Zealand schools every day? Ah. <laughs> Our point of order, the Honourable... Chris Hipkins. Mr Speaker, the government doesn't convict anybody. <coughs> the member, uh, that's a fair point. The member should reword his question. Why have there been only three convictions of parents for students not attending school in the period of this government when there are thousands of kids absent from school unexplained every day? Mr Speaker, the first point I would make is my recollection of the statistics is that is roughly the rate of uh, conviction that you will have seen over a number of years, not just under this government. It, is not, it has not been a tool that is frequently used, uh, Mr Speaker, and that in part will because uh, of its level of effectiveness. 
The second point I'd make, Mr Speaker, is that we have seen, uh, putting aside the fact that during COVID, of course, those were abnormal years, I don't believe anyone in this House would think that it would make much sense to make judgments around absence when we had the highest levels of flu season and a requirement to stay home if sick. Uh, in, Mr Speaker, the past few years. But keeping in mind, since 2015, we have seen a trend of increasing absence. If you look at some of the survey data, one of the issues that we've seen grow is that some New Zealand families believe that it is okay to withdraw your child uh, for large significant occasions or family holidays. We have a job to do across the board in reminding all families how important school attendance is to boost the funding of attendance services as we have and continue to work at a community level to bring children back into school. Supplementary. Can the Prime Minister give an example of her making a mistake, apologising for it properly and fixing it? Oh. Uh, Mr Speaker, there's been a number of occasions where we acknowledge that we will not have perfect responses. We've openly... Uh, Mr Speaker, we've openly uh, said that, for instance, MIQ uh, was something that was very difficult at the time and that there were people uh, affected by it and that we would do things differently were we ever confronted with that again. But, Mr Speaker, I stand by the work that we've done as a government over this last year and over this past term. We've always made decisions that we believe to be in the best interests of New Zealand at the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, question number five, Nicola Willis. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Finance and asks, has he been instructed by the Prime Minister to look through the things he has on his agenda to ask himself whether, either from a spending perspective and investment perspective, or just from a focus perspective, those are things that we should be prioritising at this point in time? And if so, what initiatives, if any, has he identified should no longer be prioritised? Mr Speaker, uh, the Honourable Grant Mr. Speaker yes, the Prime Minister has indeed asked that of all ministers to consider over the summer period these matters. Given the beautiful Wellington Day that we have today, which indicated summer has started, I have identified some areas that I won't be prioritising. I won't be prioritising selling off state houses. I won't be prioritising cutting public services or under-investing in hospitals or schools. I won't be prioritising not paying nurses and teachers what they deserve and I won't be prioritising a tax cut for the wealthiest New Zealanders. Order. Order. Does he think the government's planned multi-million dollar merger of Television New Zealand and Radio New Zealand should be prioritised while Kiwis are being squeezed by a cost of living crisis. Mr Speaker, this government is very proud of what we have done to support New Zealanders through the cost of living pressures that they are facing, such as lifting benefits in 2020, 2021, 2022, lifting the family tax credit, lifting childcare support, providing the cost of living payment, Mr Speaker. We are able to do those things and also invest in other things as well. So can he just confirm for the House that the TVNZ-RNZ merger is on the chopping block? It's gone. Mr Speaker, Mr. Speaker, I can confirm no such thing. But what really interests me, what really interests me is that members across the House somehow seem to think that we can go into the future with public broadcasting with no funding whatsoever. But actually, come to think of it, that's what they did for Radio New Zealand when they were in office. Does he think his proposal to impose a new jobs tax on every worker 
to pay for a gold-plated unemployment scheme will meet the Prime Minister's new tests? Or is the income insurance and scheme set for the chop too? Mr Speaker, the member's characterisation of the New Zealand income insurance scheme is completely, wildly inaccurate. And she might like to have a chat to Jerry Brownlee and others who were part of a government that introduced almost exactly the same payment for people in the wake of the Canterbury earthquakes. Does the Minister think the jobs tax will survive the summer or is the Prime Minister after it? Mr Speaker, the member is talking about something that doesn't exist. The New Zealand Income Insurance Scheme. The New Zealand Income Insurance Scheme. Well, here we go. Everything's a tax over there, except the tax cut that they wanted to give to the highest income New Zealanders. On this side of the House, we will always look for ways to support New Zealanders to get through a cost of living crisis. We actually care about what happens to New Zealanders when they lose their jobs, unlike that lot over there. When did the Prime Minister first instruct him to do a line-by-line, initiative-by-initiative review? And was it before or after Minister Wood told the AM show last week that he had not been asked to do anything of the Mr. sort? Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister issues quite a few instructions. Uh, <laughs> and I, can ha- I have in front of me here the Budget 2021 Savings Initiatives, the Budget 2022 Savings Initiatives. Mr Speaker, we take very seriously our job as responsible fiscal managers. And every day of the week, we look to see what savings and reprioritisations we can make. Uh, question number six, Camilla Balich. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Education. What reports has he seen about numbers of people undertaking vocational education and training? Uh, the Honourable Chris Hopkins. Mr Speaker, I'm pleased to report that more than 240,000 New Zealanders have received free vocational training through the Targeted Training and Apprenticeships Fund since it was introduced in 2020 to encourage people into vocational education and training in high demand industries and includes more than 106,000 apprentices. Supplementary. What was the purpose of the Targeted Training and Apprenticeships Fund? Mr Speaker, the Targeted Training and Apprenticeships Fund, or TTAF, which finishes at the end of this month, began in July 2020 and was part of the government's response to COVID-19. It was designed to make it easier for those who wanted to train in strategically important industries where demand was expected to grow. COVID-19 resulted in many New Zealanders looking to retrain, and at the same time employers in key sectors were calling out for more skilled people. By removing fees, the extra funding gave many people the chance and the confidence to get into vocational training, to take on life-changing skills and to help grow our workforce in ways that will benefit the country for decades to come. Supplementary. What groups and skill areas have particularly benefited from TTAF? Mr Speaker, uh, the biggest areas of study were construction at 30%, community support at 19% and our primary industries at 18%. Māori represented around 20% of TTAF learners, while Asian learners were at around 15% and Pacific people around 9% of the total. What impact has he seen on apprenticeship numbers overall? Mr Speaker, our investment in the Targeted Training and Apprenticeships Fund, as well as the Apprenticeship Boost Initiative, which has been extended until the end of next year, is paying off. 
We've seen large increases in apprentice numbers and people of all ages from across the community engaged in vocational education. The largest group of learners are aged 25 to 39, but a quarter are aged over 40, proving that the lifelong learning message is being heard. Supplementary. What options are available for people wanting to undertake vocational training in 2023? Mr Speaker, whilst, whilst the targeted training and apprenticeships fund is finishing next year, uh, Kiwi learners might still be able to get free vocational education under the fees-free scheme in 2023, even if they've received free training under TTAF. There's hope for you yet, Mr Brownlee. There's future career opportunities out there for you. Uh, I encourage everyone already in training or thinking about it to go to, uh, thinking about vocational education, to check it out at feesfree.gov.nz. Uh, question number seven, the Honourable Paul Goldsmith. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Justice. Is she confident the government has the correct priorities in justice? Uh, the Honourable Kitty Tapu Allen. Uh, Mr. Speaker, yes, which include responding to law and order issues through an evidence based approach, improving access to justice and tackling delays, supporting victims and stewardship of, of the overall justice system, which include a wide range of areas from civil law to electoral law. How can she be confident the government has the correct justice policies when violent crime is on track to increase by almost? 40% since 2017. Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, we have, on this side of the House as a government, put record levels of police onto the beach. We are tackling violent crime by giving police more powers to go after organised criminals and their assets and increasing the consequences of their offending. Following the Prime Minister's instruction for Cabinet Ministers to be looking through things uh, that they have on the agenda and just asking ourselves whether or not, either from a spending perspective or an investment perspective or just from a focus perspective, those are things we should be prioritising at this point in time, is she going to jettison hate speech legislation and shift her focus onto reducing violent crime? Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, as previously stated, we have a broad range of priorities and one of those was responding to the Royal Commission. Uh, we're progressing with a carefully considered two-stage approach with a focused law change in response to that commission, uh, which the member is well aware of. In addition, I can confirm that we will not be cutting costs on some of those key priorities, such as investing in victims. We have doubled the amount of support for the Victims Assistance Scheme. Uh, that's one example of the many priorities that we have underway. Has she asked the Prime Minister if she still thinks the government should be bringing forward legislation to reduce the voting age to 16 now that she wants ministers focused and carefully prioritising their efforts? Oh, Mr Speaker, uh, as a member will be well aware, uh, this parliament is obliged to consider uh, the, that issue as a consequence of the Supreme Court's ruling, and we should do so absolutely seriously. Does it still make sense to prioritising reducing the prison population when violent crime is rising, creating new victims with every crime? 
Oh, Mr. Speaker, uh, look, this is one of many priorities, is making sure that we get the settings right for our justice system. We have a broad range of targets, uh, and the member will be aware 126 non-financial targets that are in the annual report, many of those toward, uh, focused towards uh, victims and supporting victims, uh, and that is indeed one of our key priorities. Uh, question number eight. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Tourism. What reports has he seen on New Zealand's tourism recovery? Uh, the Honourable Stuart Nash. Mr Speaker, data released from the International Visitor Survey shows that spend from all international visitors totaled over a, a billion dollars in the September quarter. I've always been confident that once New Zealand's borders reopened, international tourists would return and spend throughout our regions and boost our economy. This survey shows that the world is still drawn to our fantastic country and international tourists are happy to pay for what New Zealand has to offer. Supplementary. How are our regions benefiting from the return of international visitors? Well, Mr Speaker, tourism is coming to New Zealand. Tourists are coming to New Zealand and they're coming to the regions. Tourism electronic card transaction spend in eight regions was higher than pre-COVID levels. International spend in Gisborne had the greatest increase, up by 47%, closely followed by Hawke's Bay, up by 45%. Go the mighty East Coast. <laughs> Mr Speaker, the regions are truly driving our tourism recovery, and it's fantastic to see that tourists are getting off the beaten track, spending money, and our regional economies are benefiting. Supplementary. How are tourists spending compared to other international visitors? Well, Mr Speaker, international sp tourists spent $200 million more than international visitors who were coming to see friends and relatives, despite making up similar volumes of arrivals. What this data tells us, Mr Speaker, is that our value proposition to international tourists remains incredibly strong. International tourists are staying longer, spending more and enjoying all that this fantastic country has to offer. Yes. Supplementary. What recognition has New Zealand received internationally? Mr Speaker, earlier this month, New Zealand received two highly coveted international tourism awards. Best Long Haul Country in the National Geographic Reader Awards 2022 and Auckland as the, be uh, the first destination listed on the Condonista Travel Travelers 23 Best Places to Go in 2023, even though that probably should have been Napier, Mr Speaker. I know these accolades will be welcomed by our amazing tourism operators up and down the country as they gear up for a bumper summer season. Mr Speaker, my vision for tourism is for New Zealand to be one of the top three aspirational destinations for the world's most discerning travellers, and it's playing out better than planned. Well uh, question number nine, Erica Stanford. To the Minister of Immigration, why were nurses and midwives not placed on the straight-to-residence pathway of the Green List in May, and on what date did he first receive advice, if at all, that the retention rates of migrant nurses and midwives are no longer a concern? Uh, the Honourable Michael Wood. Uh, Mr. Mr Speaker, when we launched the Green List, we had some of the most competitive settings in the world for nurses and midwives, offering both groups a pathway to residence that did not exist for many of them under the previous government. Uh, since May, we have seen large numbers of nurses and midwives arrive in New Zealand, building on the thousands of health workers who have arrived since the pandemic began, around about 3,500 nurses over that time. But in recent months, we've seen countries that we compete with strengthen their offering for skilled migrants, particularly in the health sector, where there is a global labour shortage. Our targeted adjustments to the Green List announced yesterday will ensure that we remain internationally competitive and attractive to these migrants. 
To the second part of the member's question, it is a simple fact that once someone has attained residency in New Zealand, whether that is in nursing or any other profession for that matter, they have the ability then uh, to work in other professions. Overall, the judgment that the government has made that in the light of interne that those international factors, it is desirable to have an offer that is as attractive and as simple as possible. Mr Speaker, we're focused on tackling immediate workforce shortages and we have a simple message for any offshore nurses and midwives come to New Zealand. Supplementary question. Does he now concede that the rationale for making nurses wait two years for residence, that they might suddenly decide to stop nursing, never made any sense? And why didn't he, when he first became the minister in June, take that opportunity to U-turn on a policy that no one in the health sector supported, rather than waiting another six months? Uh, Mr Speaker, I uh, reject uh, a number of assertions in the member's question. Uh, when, the, when the government put in place the Green List policy, we gave all 13 occupational groups of nurses a clear pathway to residency that did not uh, exist previously. We have further streamlined and simplified that now. It's not a U-turn, it's an acceleration, and I think it will assist us in respect, in respect of the offer of nurses to come to New Zealand. What I note further, Mr Speaker, what I note further, Mr Speaker, is that the government has worked closely with the health sector, not just to assess the situation of nurses and midwives, but also to offer a streamlined residency pathway for other clinical workers and allied health workers. So this is a bigger package of changes to help our health sector. Can the Minister describe the difference between a U-turn and an acceleration? Well, Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, a U-turn would be having a policy to give big tax cuts to the wealthiest New Zealanders and then dropping it. An acceleration would be a policy of having a two-year pathway to residency, which was an improvement on the previous situation, and then making it straight to residency, something that has been welcomed by nearly every health sector group. The only people who seem to want to politicise it are the National Party. Supplementary question. Does he stand by his response on the topic of nurses on ZB yesterday when asked, here's the thing, Minister, you guys are either stupid or stubborn, when he said, quote, hmm, well, you can hardly call us stubborn. <laughs> uh, Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, <laughs> I... Uh... I, I encourage anyone um, to, to listen to my interview on News Talk ZB uh, last night, um, but it wasn't the most productive of conversations. Uh, the member opposite and I have, have far more productive conversations on most Friday mornings. Uh, if I can respond to that question, which Heather Duplessy-Allen didn't allow me to actually answer on News Talk ZB, what I would say is that we have consistently said over the last few months, as we've worked through these genuine issues of workforce shortages in health, which everyone acknowledges and every country around the world is dealing with, that we would keep an open mind, that we would look at the settings, that we would continue talking to the sector, and that what we have done as a result of that hasn't just been, as the member has spoken about in question time today, to make changes to the settings around nurses and midwives, but we have made more fundamental changes which are going to be significantly of significant assistance to the health sector. Um, that is the opposite of being stubborn. That is listening and working with the sector. That's right. That's right. Mr Speaker. Um, question number 10, Helen White. Tēnā My question is to the Minister of Transport. What recent announcements has he made about future-proofing New Zealand's transport system? Uh, the Honourable Michael Watt. Well, Mr Speaker, over the past few weeks we've made several key announcements about future-proofing our transport system. 
Uh, the week before last, I announced the projects that will be funded by the Transport Choices Package, which will make our towns and cities more people-friendly places to live, work and visit by investing in public transport, walking and cycling in 46 councils across New Zealand. Then on Friday, I confirmed the Government's investment in the Eastern Busway Extension, which has been warmly welcomed by people in Auckland and the eastern suburbs. This will provide reliable, high-frequency service to those people, saving customers about 20 minutes on their bus or train trip between Botany Town Centre and Britomart. And on Saturday, construction began on Omahurangi Penlink, a vital connection for North Auckland, linking the Whangaparoa Peninsula with the wider Auckland region and providing residents with safer and more sustainable transport choices. The direction of travel is clear. We're getting on with delivering projects that will upgrade transport connections for Kiwis while reducing congestion and greenhouse emissions. Supplementary. What are some of the key projects being funded by the, new, uh, by the Transport Choices Package? Well, Mr Speaker, Transport Choices is about funding quick win projects that will be delivered over the next two years in councils all around New Zealand. To name just three, in Taupo, we're funding the District Council to build separated cycleways from the town to Acacia Bay, giving more transport options across the bridge, improving outcomes for new developments in the north and upgrading cycle connections in a number of schools in the area. In Tauranga, we're investing in the Arataki Multimodal Corridor, very much welcomed by the Commissioner of, of Tauranga, the Honourable Anne Tolley, with improved pedestrian crossing facilities, a separated cycleway and better links for schools in the area. And in Auckland, we're investing to vastly improve travel times by upgrading feeder routes for the Northwestern Busway, which will include 45 new bus stops, up to nine kilometres of special vehicle lanes and up to 10 new pedestrian crossings. And the member opposite's uh, our benchmate should also be very pleased about the investments in the Waimakariri district. Um, How will the Eastern Busway improve travel connections for East Aucklanders? Uh, Mr Speaker, the Government's announcement of a $200 million investment in the Eastern uh, Busway extension, which builds on stage one, which we've already delivered in this term of government, will cut travel times for residents of East Auckland and places like Pakaranga and Botany, for those people who need to get into the city while reducing congestion around the Pakaranga Town Centre. By 2028, the busway will carry up to 14,000 passengers per day, more than four times the 3,700 bus passengers uh, prior to COVID-19. And by 2048, that is expected to increase to up to 24,000 passengers today. This is a game changer for the people of the eastern suburbs in Auckland, and it's been warmly welcomed by them. Um, what benefits will Omaharangi Penlink deliver for residents in North Auckland? Well, Mr Speaker, as more people live and work in Silverdale, Whangaparoa and the Hibiscus Coast, this new two-lane road and shared path will provide improved travel times and choices for a growing part of Auckland. The project will not simply support the surrounding community through more lanes for cars, as a separated shared user path means people will be able to safely walk or travel or bike or scooter, helping to support our response to climate change. The project will also support much uh, stronger public transport connections to the successful Northern Busway. Penlink is funded by the New Zealand Upgrade Programme, which now has $3 billion worth of projects in pre-construction works, with even more major projects set to get underway next year. Our government is getting on and delivering the projects that matter to Kiwis in the transport system and will reduce our emissions and give more transport choices. 
point of order, Mr. Speaker. Uh, point of order, David Singh. Uh, Mr. Speaker, with great regret, I raise this matter at the earliest possible uh, convenience that I've been informed about it. At the end of question four, the Prime Minister made an exceedingly unparliamentary remark, which journalists are reporting uh, from the on-demand video. Um, I ask that you ask her to uh, withdraw and apologise for that remark. Um, uh, the member's well aware of the correct procedure of raising. raising uh, if it's not raised at the time, um, I would, you know, in, in my position now, I'd need to go back and have a look at the, um, uh, the record uh, and then I'll make a decision about it. A new point of order? Uh, well, uh, or are you uh, just going to disagree with? Well, I. Well, I. I, 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 yeah. I I follow what's recorded in Hansard, not what's reported to the House via uh, the member from the from the media. Mm. You know, well, you, you're, if you're asking me, mm. uh, uh, basically say, trust me, mm. uh, I'm going to do that on behalf of the House. Well, I'm not going to. Mm. Well, Mr. Speaker, you're, you're required to do that. Uh, and yes, and I've told the House that I'm go I will look at Hansard to deal with it. It's quite usual. I've actually ruled, so you can't speak to that ruled. point of order. Well, if I'm you're only... raising a new point of order, you can do that. I'm just being helpful, Mr Speaker. Um, I'm just letting you know that uh, it's not uncommon in circumstances like this for the Speaker to ask the person accused of making the unparliamentary statement to uh, if they had in fact made that statement. It's correct and apologise if they had. And if the member looked across the House, you would be able to see that the, the member, uh, that I am not able to ask that member. Speak it. Well, no, but it was an interesting response because I didn't want to talk about the Prime Minister not being here. Yeah, that's the, that's the last comment that I'm going to entertain uh, with... Uh, to do so would be to break the standing orders myself. I'm not going to do that. Uh, question number 11, Simon Watts. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Local Government. Did she receive advice from the Department of Internal Affairs on 25 October, raising the possibility that the Honourable Eugenie Sage would pursue entrenchment of provisions in the Water Services Entities Bill via supplementary order paper and stating the government would need to decide whether to support it. If so, how does she reconcile that with her answer to me in oral questions on 6 December? We were made aware of the details of the SOP at the same time as he was. Uh, the Honourable Nanaya Mahuta. Mr Speaker, yes. I received advice from DIA in response to a letter received from the Honourable Eugenie Sage on the 20th of October 2022 that covered a range of their party's concerns related to the water reforms, such as stormwater, co-governance, funding and privatisation. I can reconcile this with my response to the member's oral question on the 6th of December because it was related more specifically to a matter foreshadowed in that letter and then subsequently set out at a later date and tabled in SOP 285. Did she send advice received on SOP number 285 
on 22nd November relating to entrenchment to any other ministers? If so, who? Mr Speaker, the SOP was tabled uh, by uh, UJ, the Honourable Eugenie Sage in the House. It was a very dynamic debate. I saw that SOP at the same time and then subsequently sought advice on it. Uh, point of order, Chris Bishop. Uh, that wasn't the question. The question was about the advice that the Minister received uh, on that SOP and whether or not that advice was sent to other Ministers. Can you, that's not quite how I heard it, but if you, uh, if Simon Watts, if you could ask the question again, because I, I thought it was different to that, but where you go. Did she send advice received on supplementary order paper number 285 on 22nd November relating to entrenchment to any other ministers? If so, who? As I said, that there was a dynamic debate that occurred in the House. I saw that SOP when it was tabled and then subsequently sought advice. I'll give the member an, sorry, I'll give the member an additional question. Did she receive advice on supplementary order paper number 285 on 22nd November relating to entrenchment? And did she send that advice to any other ministers? Mr Speaker, the advice that I sought was in relation to the discussions in relation to an entrenchment provision at a threshold of 75%. In that regard, we did not have a uh, provision within the bill as introduced because of decisions that were made at Cabinet. Uh, point of order, David Seymour. Mr Speaker, it was a very reasonable question about advice received and shared on a particular day. The advice that the Minister was referring to uh, occurred months beforehand. Uh, how can she get out of addressing the question of did she receive advice on that amendment on that day and if so, did she share it with anyone? That wasn't remotely addressed. Hmm. Um, can the member ask the question once more? Did she receive advice on SOP number 285 on 22nd November relating to entrenchment? And did she send that advice to any other ministers? The advice, Mr Speaker, the advice that I, that I requested and received was in relation to an entrenchment provision of 75%. And as I say, that is the advice upon which I acted on the fact that Standing Order 270 enables a lower threshold of entrenchment to be considered was a matter for the clerk to determine whether or not it was in or out of scope within the context of the debate that we had. Our point of order, Chris Bishop. Again, Mr Speaker, that, that just does not address the very direct and simple question that my colleague Simon Watts is, answer, is asking. Uh, it just does nowhere goes to address that question. Well, um, having, heard the, having heard the answer a second time, uh, the answer covered the information that the Minister requested, uh, which was different to the information that the member asked about. So the member can read into that whatever he wishes. 
Who did she send that advice to? Mr Speaker, I acted on the advice and to the, to the extent that I sought advice in relation to the entrenchment provision at a 75% threshold and acted accordingly. With, and the bill was not introduced with an entrenchment provision. In relation to SOP, in relation to SOP, in relation to SOP 285, we have already had the debate. A mistake was made. It has been rectified. We have the Water Service Entities Law without any entrenchment provision. Point of order. Point of order, Simon Watts. My question was clearly, who does she send the advice to? I don't believe that question was answered. I'll ask the member to ask that once more. Who did she send that advice to? Mr Speaker, in relation to the advice I received uh, regarding a 75% threshold of entrenchment, there was, no, uh, there was no need to forward on that advice because there was no need to forward on that advice because we had already made a decision in relation to that particular matter. Uh, supplementary, David Seymour. Does the Minister for Local Government stand by her statement just now that it was, quote, a mistake to support supplementary order paper 285 entrenching three waters provisions? Or does she stand by her statement to the committee of the whole House at the time that members had a, quote, moral obligation, unquote, to support it? What was it? A moral obligation or a mistake? Mr Speaker, we've rectified that matter. It was a mistake. It has been resolved. There is no constitutional crisis and there is no entrenchment provision on the Water Service Entities Law. Supplementary. Why did she seek advice if she had already made a decision? Mr Speaker, that SOP was introduced by another member in the House. It was a very dynamic debate. Uh, it's not entirely uh, the case that on every SOP that could be tendered by any member in this House uh, that it wouldn't be debated or be in a very, considered in a very dynamic environment in regards to SOP 285, an admission has been made that a mistake did occur. We rectified it. The Water Service Entities Law does not include an entrenchment provision. Question number 12, uh, Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, my question is to the Minister of Education and reads as follows. Does he think the wages of rural school bus drivers in Aotearoa, in Aotearoa are fair? Uh, the Honourable Chris Hipkins. Mr Speaker, I appreciate the valuable work that all bus drivers do to ensure children and young people are transported to and from school safely. I note that the government's made additional funding available to support better terms and conditions to attract and retain public transport bus drivers. I'm committed to ensuring that rural communities are not disadvantaged by the additional support provided to public transport bus drivers. Supplementary. 
Is he aware of a discrepancy in wages between rural school bus drivers and urban bus drivers? And if so, what is this discrepancy? Uh, Mr Speaker, as I indicated in my primary answer, yes, I am aware of the current discrepancy. Supplementary. Is he confident that no tamariki will be left outside their farm gates at the beginning of Term 1 next year as drivers seek better pay in other parts of the bus industry? Uh, Mr Speaker, yes, I am confident that those who have contracted to delivering bus services will continue to deliver them. Uh, we've just recently gone through a contracting round for school bus services uh, and there was a particular emphasis during that contracting round on improving the employment conditions of bus drivers, including uh, on improving their wages. Obviously the decisions the Government has taken around public transport bus drivers post-date that recent uh, contracting round for school bus services uh, and therefore we're considering uh, how best to, uh, to deal with the flow and consequences of that. Uh, does the $61 million allocated in Budget 22 to standardise minimum base wage rates apply to rural bus drivers? And if, if not, why not? Uh, Mr Speaker, no, uh, because they are funded through two entirely different funding sources. Supplementary. Why does the Ministry of Education not set a wage floor or, bus or base rate for its school transport services? Uh, Mr Speaker, one of the conditions in the contract uh, is around making sure that bus drivers are appropriately treated. It doesn't have specifically have a wage floor, uh, but it does have provisions within the contract, and, we're, and, uh, and it was used as one of the criteria um, in determining who was allocated contracts. Supplementary. How will he ensure rural school bus drivers are paid fair wages without having to wait until fair pay agreements have come into force? Mr Speaker, as I indicated, one of the things that the Government is considering at the moment are the, is the implication of the recent moves to increase public transport bus driver wages. Uh, we're considering the flow-on implications of that to school bus drivers. Uh, that concludes oral questions.